This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am just delighted today to be joined again by Dr. Jeff Siegel. Dr. Siegel was on the show a couple weeks ago where we had a wonderful and entertaining conversation about his life and career development, which led him from practicing neurosurgery to the entrepreneurial world of business and pharmaceuticals, and now to his uh, the current hat that he wears as a practicing lawyer in the medical malpractice space. Uh, don't worry, only defending us, the physicians. Dr. Siegel, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. So since our first episode, when we were joined by Dan Wolfson, a, another resident at Rush who pointed me in your direction when he uh, read an MBA business textbook in which you had written a book chapter. Thanks again, Dan, for the great recommendation for Dr. Siegel. Um, I've been looking forward to speaking with you again. Last week, we were supposed to do this, and then I had some add-on surgeries, so we had to push this uh, another week. And then today, as we were uh, getting ready to sign in and, and do today's episode, you were running late. And uh, as <laughs> usual, for anyone who heard the last episode, there's a crazy story. So Dr. Siegel, since you said you were comfortable talking about it, why were you late for the podcast today? Yeah, so I'm sorry. My bad. I was late. Um, but I did have an interesting weekend. I went, so I'm an avid cyclist. I love road cycling. And every Saturday we do a fairly brisk and intense ride with about 20 people. Um, and we hit it pretty hard. So the plan was to go about 60 miles and... I felt like I was riding at altitude. I felt like I was at 10,000 feet, and I don't live at 10,000 feet. We live close to sea level. So something didn't seem right. I did back it off just a little bit, and the group did back it off. And um, I don't know. I, I just did not feel right. So the next day, looking into this, I thought I may just go to the ER um, and I did, but I stopped off at the Waffle House in advance of going to the ER just to give you a summary or an analysis of how urgent I believe the condition was. Needed to have some pancake waffles in advance of going to the ER. But the reason I did want to go is I wanted to rule out atrial fibrillation, although my pulse seemed regular. Um, and I also had two DBTs in the past. They were both what I perceived were provoked. So there was an explanation for them. And there was nothing that looked like I had provoked a current DVT, but I still just wanted to be sure, you know, the worried well. So go to the ER. They do a, uh, it took a while to convince them to do a D dimer test. It came back uh, positive. You know, normal is uh, upper limit is 0.5, and this was six, so more than 10 times higher. Then they brought in the ultrasound um, tech who did a Doppler flow and said that I have a active clot in the uh, femoral and popliteal vein. And then I got a CT angiogram, <clears throat> pulmonary vessels, showing bilateral pulmonary emboli. So that bought me lifelong anticoagulation and admission into the hospital heparin for 36 hours. And um, here we are. So I was discharged. I feel pretty good. In one sense, I feel as if I dodged a bullet. I will tell you, though, that my decision to go to the ER 
was a coin flip. I could have easily been persuaded to stick it out at the Waffle House, turn around, go home, and I'm not sure I would have made our meeting tonight. So, um, so I guess it was a fortuitous decision, and um, I guess that's how life goes. I, I mean, I don't believe I'm out of the woods, and I don't want to speak too freely, but I do believe I'm better off with Zeralto in my veins right now compared to uh, going solo. Well, perhaps some of the grease from the Waffle, waffle House in your veins also uh, helped loosen something up on your way there. But I, I will I will point out for our listeners that um, Dr. Siegel, I think it, th- this is a stunning example of the neurosurgical mindset. One, obviously the stopping off at Waffle House, that might be part of the Texas mindset as well. But two, um, <laughs> if you're going to be late, you really have to have a good reason. And having a PE is a pretty good reason. And and with that, you were what five minutes late? That's pretty neurosurgical, I'd say. Not not too bad. I felt like um, I was able to step up my game pretty quickly. Of course, I had to run up the stairs, uh, and uh, I was a little winded. But um, I don't know. I'm hoping that uh, this heals and I can recover majority of the function back. But I will tell you, it is very humbling to be in the zone of life where medical mishaps do occasionally appear. But, you know, look, we're like, hopefully we're like cats and we get another chance or we get another round in the boxing match. It's probably a a better metaphor. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this is just occurring to me now. And again, if at any point you want to stop discussing this with a recording going, then by all means say so. But now are you going to be getting back on the bike on, on Zarelto on active anticoagulation? It's a great question. So I've answered that question previously because I was on Zeralto in the past uh, yeah. two times each each uh, for three months. The first time I was pretty religious about staying off the bike. It was fortunate because it was in what you know our off season. So typically, um, once once daylight saving time ends, it's more indoor stuff. So I, I didn't go outdoors the first time. The second time I was off the I was off the bike for about four weeks and got back on. And it's interesting because I spoke to a vascular surgeon and he said, you really want to be active to avoid post-thrombotic uh, syndrome. And um, <laughs> I said, well, what about being on the anticoagulation? Yeah. He just looked up and said, well, don't fall off. Don't fall <laughs> off your bike. And yeah. I thought, well... That's kind of my goal to begin with. And it, it is a trade-off. I, it's like uh, neurosurgeons who ride motorcycles. You know, it's, it's certainly not as safe as driving in a car, but it's a risk-reward type of analysis. And, you know, we all think about it. And certainly most neurosurgeons seem to be comfortable with calculated risk. I'm no exception. I think we were type A and most most that I've met are type A individuals, and are comfortable living close to the edge. Um, that doesn't mean we always escape uh, unharmed, but um, I will be back on a bike. Yeah, good. Uh, you know, briefly a major shout out to Dr. Wang who unfortunately couldn't join us tonight. Uh, he's got add-ons going on, but something he always used to say that has stuck with me is that. There's a difference between danger and risk and risk can be mm-hmm. uh, that's acceptable because we can mitigate risk and manipulate risk and, and take steps against it. But danger, something that's just inherently dangerous, should be avoided. 
And so, as you say, getting on the bike may be risky, but you can take precautions and be careful and have some influence on the outcome there. But I'm curious because the fact that you went to the hospital and now someone is prescribing you the Xarelto, which means you're engaged with the medical system and presumably you have a regular doctor with whom you have a relationship and who knows you. And that means your doctor who wrote you a prescription for Xarelto, knowing you're an avid cyclist, also knows that you are a neurosurgeon who now practices law in the medical malpractice theater. And so I imagine there is some perhaps trepidation when, when that physician signed the prescription for you, knowing what might happen down the road. And, and that, you know, I say that a little tongue in cheek, but perhaps to segue to, I'm curious, what is the experience like when you, not just a physician, but a neurosurgeon and not just a physician, but an MD, JD, again, in medical law, what is your relationship with physicians like when you're the patient? I imagine I, they have to treat you differently than other patients, but is it ever contentious or do you develop a better rapport and, and talk to each other more as partners? What's that like? Yeah, I pick doctors carefully. Um, yeah. I, it's totally collaborative, totally collaborative. So just the way this worked out right now, um, I only met the hospitalist. I mean, there were a collection of uh, two hospitalists. I thought they were great. I really, really like them. And um, they gave me some guidance. And I had done some work up in the past on the clotting cascade and my older lab values, et cetera. And there was a back and forth of what, you know, the various studies meant. So I found it entertaining, interesting, and, um, and engaging. Um, my regular intern is just retired. So he's hmm. been replaced. Um, by a younger physician I have yet to meet. I have, I have not met this, this guy yet. My son goes to him and he seems, you know, the family seems to uh, like him. So I'm looking forward to meeting him. I've got an appointment with a hematologist that I was recommended to. So we'll talk about some of the clotting stuff. I think all he's going to tell me is that looking at the, uh, the labs, et cetera, the only calculus is whether it's short-term or long-term anti-coag. And since you've repeat offender, it's going to be long-term. So I don't think that's going to be a, uh, any, you know, a deep discussion. And I also have a relationship with a sports medicine cardiologist uh, in another state who deals with um, athletes, uh, takes care of professional sports teams. So he's used to these kinds of conversations, which is um, individualized treatment, you know, meaning that um, what they might recommend to the general public would be a little bit different. But, you know, he's basically going to say, look, we don't know what the risk is, but part of your life, the thing that makes life worth living is the social engagement with your buddies, um, with road cycling or whatever the sport is. And we, we could certainly eliminate all risk by just keeping you in your house and you probably still have to do some walking so you don't get a recurrent PE, but um, everybody lives with some element of risk. We could we, we could drop the autom automobile fatality rate overnight if we cut the speed limit from 65 to 30 and mandate sure. that everybody wear flame-proof flame clothing and helmets. But yeah. we're not going to do that because it would be amazingly inconvenient and we get some benefit by virtue of the rules being what they are. They're, they're good enough. And unfortunately, we do have traffic fatalities 
but it's the relationship between risk and benefit that we have to calibrate and it's individualized for each person. Yeah. Could not agree more. Um, I suppose with that, I will uh, try to move into the planned topic for today's episode. And I'd like to dive a little bit more into your current job, uh, the MDJD Defender of Physicians Nationwide. Um, I'm curious because we, we kind of got into it last conversation with what you actually do day to day. But uh, to drill into it a bit more, first off, are you mostly in the offices or are you yourself a trial lawyer? I imagine someone who's drawn to surgery and operations and that sort of performance would naturally gravitate toward doing, you know, the performance of the trial themselves. And because to me, if I were to try to draw a sloppy analogy, that would be the closest thing to operating, like a surgery would be on trial and, and doing the trial yourself. But I have no idea what your role is like in your firm and and how your you know position there as an attorney has evolved over the years. So what's your actual job job like? Okay, so um, broadly, we defend doctors. I defend doctors, and I'm unapologetic about defending doctors. My role is to solve conflicts, conflicts between <clears throat> doctors and patients, conflicts between doctors and administrators, conflicts between uh, doctors and insurance companies. The list goes on and on. And each of those have different uh, toolkits and different processes. Um, I'm not really a litigator per se, but I've been in court. Um, typically, if I'm in court, I've got I'm co-counsel working mostly on the strategy. So I'm not much of a process person. I'm more of a strategic uh, thinker. Hmm. Typically, there are medical issues, and I can parse those rapidly and see what is relevant in terms of defending the doctor. Because most of the time, if the doctor's in the hot seat, it's because there's an allegation he didn't follow the standard of care or there are implications related to patient safety, professional competence, fitness for duty. These are the buzzwords that animate uh, my day and make it challenging for physicians just to practice day to day. The, the challenge for doctors when they get sucked up into one of these conflicts is that it will consume them. <clears throat> I've written about why doctors treat being sued differently than the rest of the population. So I've often, I'm often asked by uh, trial attorneys, um, why don't doctors just turn this over to the insurance company when they're sued for med mal and move on with their lives? When, when I get into an auto accident, I don't think myself the worst driver in the world. I just notify my insurance carrier, and I probably never hear from them again. They'll send right. me a note saying, uh, "We've uh, whatever allegation was made against you, it's been dismissed, or we paid a, a claim, you know, on your behalf." And of course, they don't tell you they're going to raise your rates or cancel you down the road, but it, they just deal with it, and you don't think about it. The problem for us as physicians is that. Our reputations are embedded in the uh, in the action. It's an assault on reputation. If you, uh, well, what what will happen is that if you are sued, you are looking typically at a multi-year process. You'll have to take time away from your family and your practice to prepare. You'll be in depositions. You'll potentially be in court. Uh, if you lose, 
and a payment uh, is made by your carrier, you'll be reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. It doesn't matter if the payment amount is $1 or a million dollars or $10 million. There's a report to the data bank. There will be a report to the uh, licensing authority, uh, to the credentialing committees related to the hospital where you work at, uh, to insurance companies that you're in network with. It's something that will linger with you. So it's no surprise that doctors want to fight vigorously, particularly when they believe they did nothing wrong. Many attorneys start with the outcome, which is they see a patient who is injured. They see damages. person who died, somebody who's blind, lost an arm or a leg, can't move an arm or a leg. And um, that starts the process. But for a lawyer to prevail for their client, they need to demonstrate many things. They need to demonstrate and prove that the um, that there was a doctor-patient relationship, the doctor violated a standard of care, and that breach in the standard of care caused damages. They have to run the board. And so it's a long and involved process. The standard of care is typically demonstrated to the jury by expert witnesses. And it's very aggravating for doctors to hear an opposing expert witness deliver testimony that sounds preposterous, something that is not just a different opinion. It's an opinion that they've never heard before. So it is maddening. It's maddening because they know that expert witness testimony gets paid handsomely, and there's an attraction to being an advocate for the plaintiff. So lots and lots of things going on there, and that animates my day. Hmm. You know, I will remind our listeners a few years back, and I think I mentioned this to you, Dr. Siegel, we did a series on medicine and the law. Uh, we had uh, Stephen Sparworth, a great attorney down in South Florida, as well as Jim Harrop in Philadelphia on talking about malpractice and what to do when you're served from a, a legal perspective. But obviously, with a foot in both worlds, you have a, a very unique perspective here. And so it's interesting because you, you talking about your role in the firm and the strategic role that you take, um, I wonder if when you have these physician clients, you also take on kind of a, a guide or mentor role because, as you say, you've written about and you, you have a clear vision of why physicians take a lawsuit differently than other professionals may or differently than they would take a challenge or accusation in another realm of life because of that psychological threat to the reputation. So I wonder if, in addition to the legal strategic thought that you provide, do the physician clients turn to you as uh, not just a legal, but a personal or psychological advisor as well? I would actually say that's probably my primary goal is to keep them from jumping off the ledge. They're in good company. First of all, I was sued one time for what I perceive to be a frivolous reason. The single expert who testified against me had actually been expelled by our professional society, the AANS. Why? Well, for delivering frivolous testimony. Yet, there he was on the stand testifying about a procedure he had never seen nor done in the past. Why? He was paid well to do it. So this ca case was dismissed a couple weeks before trial. I never felt as if I won anything, just that I lost less. And that was why I started medical justice, was to hold 
people like that accountable. But I do understand what it's like. And I tell most doctors, you will survive. Most conflicts are not fatal to your career. And you're in good company. If you are a surgeon, broadly, if you're a surgeon, the likelihood that you will go at your entire career to age 65 without being sued is probably three or four percent, maybe less. Of course, it depends what state you practice in. Some states are uh, better in terms of the medical legal environment. Other states are judicial latrines, where the likelihood of you being sued is extremely high. The other piece of good news is that most of the time when a doctor is sued, the case will either be dismissed or they will win in court. Now, a lot of it, you know, I'm going to give you the lawyerly answer. It depends. It depends what the facts are on the particular case. But by and large, you're going to know more about the medicine than the other side, certainly at the very beginning. And you'll be able to, as a doctor, and certainly for me, to parse the words related to expert testimony. And I think this is interesting because the plaintiff's attorney will never know as much medicine as you do. I mean, there may be exceptions to that, but it does give you a strategic advantage to be able to fight reasonably or defend yourself reasonably. One final point is that there are times it makes sense to de-escalate and settle. I'm not saying fight every fight like a cage, uh, like a cage fight to the death. There are times that it does make sense to try and settle, and then we can engage various strategies to mitigate the damage. Let me just describe one strategic tool where the doctor wants his day in court, but you can see how a jury might be swayed by an appeal to sympathies. Um, It's called a high-low agreement. So broadly, let's take a case of, I'll say, cerebral palsy outside of the neurosurgery uh, domain, but it's useful to illustrate the point. It's generally felt that that um, cerebral palsy develops in utero, that it's not related to the delivery process. But when an OB-GYN is sued for a patient with cerebral palsy, it's because of some allegation they didn't step up to the delivery quickly enough, they didn't do a C-section, anesthesia didn't get there fast enough, so on and so forth. So to, to reiterate what we said earlier, to win a malpractice case, the plaintiff must demonstrate that there was a doctor-patient relationship. Well, easy to do there. That the doctor breached a standard of care. I don't think that there'd be a breach in a cerebral palsy case. And it caused damages. Well, damages in a cerebral palsy case, very high. So there's a balance between who will win which side of that argument. The doctor will be on the winning side, hopefully, with, um, with um, standard of care, breach of standard of care. The plaintiff will be able to demonstrate lots of damages. So each side has some risk. And in that particular case, the doctor would want his day in court, but he doesn't want to risk a $10 million judgment. He only has a $1 million policy. He doesn't want to go bankrupt just to prove a point. He doesn't want the risk. Enter a high-low agreement. High-low agreement is a way to potentially create some bookends for you know, the ultimate outcome of a case. So typically in court, 
it's winner take all. Plaintiff may win any number from, we'll say, you know, $1 to $10 million, and the doctor may will either win or lose. But he doesn't want to lose $10 million. At most, he wants to lose $1 million policy limits. Okay, so high-low agreement is a side agreement, typically uh, agreed to between the two sides in advance of the, um, the jury delivering its verdict. It means every side's going to get something. Nobody totally loses. So the before picture could go anywhere from $0 to $10 million. With the high-low agreement, the jury is just there to decide whether the doctor's liable or not. They may come back and talk about damages, but it's not going to be relevant because of the side agreement, the side high-low agreement. That agreement may look like $100,000 to $1 million. So the the plaintiff will get something no matter what. They'll get $100,000. The jury comes back and says the doctor wins. Well, the before picture was the patient would get zero. Now they get $100,000. But in return, if the plaintiff is to win in this high-low agreement, it's capped at a million dollars, policy limits. They don't get the $10 million a jury would have delivered. They get $1 million. So there's a way for the doctor there to get their day in court but not risk their nest egg trying to prove a point. Again, strategy. There are times that you want to pull out some tools in the toolkit just to make sure that you don't you don't bet the house and then lose. <clears throat> yeah, that that's really instructive and really interesting. The the intricacies of uh, the the legal process, legal system, and and that degree of detail that really isn't captured in law and order, for example, or, or even, <laughs> uh, right. Like that, that's not, that's not the kind of deal we, you know, in popular culture, there's guilty and innocent and that's it. And so these complex right. arrangements that can be entered into are, you know, even someone like myself who my family are lawyers never been exposed to something like that. And that's a really interesting landscape to ponder and almost the gamification of the law and think about um, how to, mitigate the risk benefit, if you will, to your client entering into that landscape is fascinating. And I can see what would draw an analytical mind, like someone who's drawn to neurosurgery as well, into practicing like this. Um, I think it's also interesting uh, when, when you were saying how you have to counsel surgeons or physicians that a lawsuit is not the end of the world. I, I think that we talk all the time these days about the negativity bias in human psychology and how, you mm -hmm. know, it, it, you let's let's say a one dollar amount. If you gain one dollar, the amount that that feels good, the absolute value is less than losing one dollar. The amount that that feels bad, that we feel right. negative stimuli more greatly, we perceive them more greatly. And I think that whatever part of the brain or what, whatever circuit of psychiatry goes into that is amped up naturally in people that go into medicine and surgery and then only cultivated because I think we can all remember every stage of professional development the first time you missed something in a chart, the first time you forgot something on rounds, the first time you made a technical error, even if it was trivial, the first time you made a technical error that caused serious harm. And what I haven't experienced yet, but the first time you're in practice and you have a patient who dies either from negligence or a direct action or mistake made. And, and all of these steps along the way, I imagine for those future ones, but I know from the past ones, 
each one of them seems like the end of the world. And then you keep going and you survive and you look back years later and go, oh yeah, that happens and you keep going. So I can imagine the first lawsuit is one of those moments where you go, oh my God, I've been sued. And then I can, I can, I can easily appreciate the value of having someone again in that mentor and guiding role to say, physicians get sued all the time. It's not the end of the world. Honestly, it's the, it's my primary role. I've been there, yeah. done that. I've talked to hundreds of doctors who have been in exactly the same situation. Yes, there are some circumstances, rarely, where you may have a problem with a medical licensing board, maybe, maybe even lose your license, but not for most of the things. The vast majority of things, you will survive. And as I said, there are times it does make sense to, to settle. In fact, yeah. There are tools in the toolkit that can be used to try and step in sooner rather than later to mitigate the damages. Let me illustrate. So the data bank has a rule which says that if a payment is made on your behalf by an insurance company, doesn't matter what the dollar value is, that's reportable to the data bank, National Practitioner Data Bank. And, you know, anything that gets reported to the data bank goes everywhere, goes to the medical licensing boards, insurance companies, and so on and so forth. But um, if you are to, if you offer um, a settlement to the patient in advance of them making a written demand in writing and your carrier will do it, it's not reportable to the data bank. Your carrier may report, but we can probably get it removed. Why? Because the process that must be followed for reportability by the carrier to the data bank is this. The plaintiff patient must make a written demand for money based on an allegation of negligence. Repeat, the patient must make a written demand for money um, alleging negligence for there to be a reportable event. And, you know, if you sidestep by saying, Mrs. Jones, I am so sorry for what happened. I'd like to make, the, I want to find a way to make this right for you. There, you know, there are processes you want to be careful about um, uh, admitting liability quickly, but there's certainly some circumstances where you can imagine why that would be a feel-good moment and make tremendous sense. If that deal can be consummated, then while the patient is getting money uh, paid by a carrier, in theory, not reportable to the data bank. So in one sense, you would have you know, transferred cash from point A to point B, but it, would have not, it wouldn't have the same damage to your reputation going forward because you made an offer. The patient didn't demand it up front. I know that sounds like a silly distinction, but you know, the data bank is just such a, a um, I guess, thorn in everybody's side uh, over the time that you, you use the tools in your toolkit to try and make it less painful. Got it. Well, Dr. Siegel, unsurprisingly, we've done it again. And uh, I, I think we need to bring this conversation to an end. But I, I'll just call you out on the air again and say that I'd love to have you back again sometime in the near future, because in addition to talking about the, the past and the present now today, I'd love to talk about your future plans, drill a little bit more into where you think medical justice will be going. And I will uh, broadcast for our listeners that I'm not the only neurosurgeon podcaster in the conversation right now. 
Um, Dr. Siegel, as I said last, uh, last time he was on, has a podcast of his own, The Medical Liability Minute, where I've listened to a few episodes since talking with you, and he goes uh, in just as much detail about these interesting intricacies of the medical legal system, uh, not just giving advice, but describing scenarios and, and drilling into these things. Like I said, it's not just law and order. It's, it's a much deeper level. And to an analytical mind, it's very fascinating. So I'll point our listeners to that podcast. There's a huge back catalog um, that you know I, I've been sampling, and it's very entertaining. But perhaps we can also have you back to talk about the experience of starting and conducting a podcast and what it's like to have these conversations. Um, but before we bring it to a close, I prepared a few more rapid fire questions for you uh, just at the end to, uh, to, to see if I can get you in a hot seat and maybe get a, a couple laughs for myself. Now you'll see so, if you can put me into full, full blown, um, VTAC, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, that okay. was, that was the Give your best shot. So we, we got to make you right this time. Um, so they're very different and they're different parts of your life, but shooting from the hip, were you a better neurosurgeon or a better lawyer? Ooh, very challenging question. I thought I was a pretty damn good neurosurgeon. Um, and I will tell you that it took me a while to become adept at being a good lawyer. Um, with, you know, with the law, you use language and you need to be able to persuade and write. And I thought I was a better writer and persuader earlier than later. It took me a while to develop that skill set. And I still remember, you know, thinking how, you know, what a great persuasive writer I was. <laughs> My wife read, she's a, she actually is a writer. She, she read what I had written and she goes, you know, this is really just shit, <laughs> you know? And um, it took a while, but I mean, I think her advice was solid. It did hurt my feelings, but I got over it. And um, it just, it took a while to learn the different way of thinking. It is a way of thinking. Um, but, you know, I, um, I think I am at heart a neurosurgeon who just happens to practice law. Well, that was a very neurosurgical answer. I will say, um, again, from someone who's interacted with many of the uh, lawyers, I think you've made the transition because after our last conversation, towards the end, you were telling a story. I don't remember the context offhand, but I remember a phrase you used that stuck out to me at the time, and I was just turning it over in my mind afterwards because it was a wonderfully particular phrase. You described someone as innocent or, more accurately, not guilty. And I just said, well, that's something a lawyer would say. Innocent or more accurately, not guilty. Uh, yeah, so. I mean, that's true. There, there are certainly times when, um, you know, I think the Scots have a three-part system, which is innocent, guilty, or not proven. So right. there are three potential. I, and that's what is meant by getting, getting away scot-free. Oh, that. That's great. I'm going to file that one away for future use too. Um, so would you rather get medical advice from a lawyer or legal advice from a doctor? <laughs> um, repeat that question one more time. Would, would you rather get medical advice from a lawyer or legal advice from a doctor? Okay. That's going to be a tight one, but I'll say I'd rather get legal advice from a doctor. Okay. Fair enough. Um, now, I'll give you a couple ways to go with this one. Nothing incriminating. You can make up a time and place and 
outside the statute of limitations. But can you recall an example from your clinical practice days now looking back as the attorney, an example of, oh, my God, I can't believe he got away with that. Oh, uh, yes. I think every doctor who practices um, is aware of a, um, a case where the patient was injured. And with the benefit of hindsight, you're looking back and go, I made a decision that I wish I had not made. And interestingly enough, those are the ones that you really go out of your way to make nice with the family. And, and there's a set of processes that are quite helpful for this. Um, if there's a complication, whether or not, there, whether or not there's negligence, the, the rule of thumb is, or the algorithm is as follows. First, be human, say you're sorry. It doesn't mean you're liable. It just means you're empathetic to the fact that another human being is going through a difficult situation. It's very helpful. I don't mm. recommend hiding. I recommend just saying you're sorry. Number two, um, identify, say, tell the family you're going to do a root cause analysis. You don't use that, those words, but you're going to try and figure out what happened. It won't necessarily help them, but people want to know that um, you know some good can come out of this. You will report back. You will take ownership of this and report back in a particular time. I, I would give them your cell phone number. You don't want them to think that you're hiding something. You want to be totally transparent. And then finally, if there's some way you can ease their life, do so. Um, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of being available, um, getting them the right consultants. Uh, doctors have gone to, uh, and I've recommended, not all the time, but sometimes to go to the patient's funeral, indeed, if they die. It's just a demonstration of humanity. Um, there are times it would be completely inappropriate to do that. Every case is different. But I think let's not forget we are humans, and a patient may forget what you told them they will never forget how you made them feel. And so being available, being human, being empathetic, these are acquired skills. Some people are born with them, but most, most, most of the time you can develop these over time. And I think they will serve you well in terms of managing uh, bad outcomes. We all get them. Um, anyone who says they've never experienced a complication either has not operated, is a liar, or engages in no follow-up. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and then finally, uh, last time we asked you if you recall the last surgery you performed. So today I will ask you, do you recall the first case that you tried? Ooh, uh, the first case we defended. I actually don't. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't. Again, a very neurosurgical answer. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to say, do I remember the first case? And the first case I did in in practice, you know, when I finally put out my shingle was a carpal tunnel. That one I do know. <laughs> there you go. That's great. Well, it's pretty uh, easy. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Siegel, thank you again so much for your time uh, taken away from being with your family on a, on a late on a weeknight. So um, this has been a, a wonderful conversation to drill more into what you're doing these days with you. I look forward to having you back again in the future to discuss uh, podcasting as a surgeon and lawyer and where you think the rest of your life will go. Um, good luck with your health and your cycling. And uh, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Totally appreciated it. Disclaimer time. 
The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.